0: Well, what are you doing over this Christmas? And if some of you are going to the pantomime, oh, no, we're not, oh, yes, we are. And um, uh, I'm going to see, uh, or see, yeah, I'm going to hear and say, I'm going to see the Messiah um, sung in the cathedral uh, on Saturday, uh, providing Daria gets back from Bosnia in time. Um, But uh, we're uh, we're planning something out. I haven't done that for many, many years, and uh, it's quite exciting. Uh, Some of you might be going to carol services where you sing the sort of story of the nine lessons and the carols. that Again, walk through the Old Testament and then really show you what Jesus was, who he was, and so on, as does the Messiah. And what they do, actually, is very interestingly, they show how the whole of the Old Testament points to Christ's coming. Now, it's very interesting that the uh, church calendar treats Advent in a very special way. And everyone gets very excited in Advent because we all say, well, yes, Christmas is coming. Well, I hope you read the article on the um, back page of the uh, uh, sheet because it uh, corrects that a little bit. The thing is that when you get to the Advent season, everyone thinks they're looking forward to Christmas. No, 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 you've been fooled. That's what the stores and the um, materialist world wants you to believe, to buy presents and spend money. Do you know they earn more money in the season of Christmas, in other words, around December and January, than than they do for the whole of the rest of the year in some cases, because it's such a, a busy time. But Christmas in the Christian calendar actually is looking forward to the second coming of Christ, and says far more as did the prayers in Advent about the second coming, and it's that that should concern us even more than anything else. When uh, A. W. Tozer was looking uh, across the uh, the Christian history, he said, "Actually, where we stand today is in the middle of a valley, and on one side is a huge mountain, and that mountain is the first coming of Jesus, His." birth yes but also his life his miracles his teaching leading to his death and resurrection and we stand there as we go through the valley looking up at a mighty hill on the other side because Jesus is returning again and this hill is his return and we are making our way up that hill because one day he will return and the key thing about the readings we've heard so far is we don't know when that's the key thing. When a thief comes to your house, he's not going to knock on the door and, uh, you know, put the, the, fire, the fire engine sirens on to say, I'm on my way. And I'll, uh, by the way, I'll send you a text half an hour before I arrive. And of course, they don't arrive within half an hour. But anyhow, you know, he doesn't do that. No, no, he does it secretly because he doesn't want you to know. And Jesus said that is going to be similar to the coming of his return. For the unbeliever. That's the difference. Believers have a different thing. He's given the signs which we read about and uh, Igor read to us to warn us of the coming. And those signs are many earthquakes and floods and things like that, uh, corruption in uh, humanity, wars and so on, all the nasty things. And we can see them. But many in the world see them, and life just goes on. They're happy to ignore them. Oh, it's over in Japan. That doesn't bother me. Oh, that's, that's, a, oh, that's a terrible, oh, look at that famine. And that war, well, it's, it's serious, so we don't need to worry about that. So similarly, the, uh, the, the, uh, the whole idea of, of what is going on outside, uh, we, we try to keep ourselves secure as we can. Uh, and we try to ignore what's coming. C.S. Lewis noticed how people are very happy to ignore the presence of God in their lives, but points out that when pain comes along, that changes things. Pain is knocking on the door and reminding us. And C.S. Lewis said this, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's quite a challenge. Because the things that we see and the signs that we have uh, considered, uh, that have been read to us, are a challenge to a deaf world. To wake up, Christ is coming again. And so Jesus, to illustrate, had told three parables. One is the parable of the bridesmaids. Uh, And I'll put the context to this. Jesus told three parables to remind people to be careful. He said, watch and be ready. For you don't know when I'm coming. And the things that he said also were that the three parables reminded us all to make sure that we're ready. He said that... the. The uh, kingdom would come uh, for the bridesmaids uh, when they they, uh, weren't uh, ready for it. He said that the kingdom would come for the people who were given the gold. That there'd be a reckoning when the master would return. Similarly, the parable of the sheep and goats talks of God the judge. A court scene. And again, there's a reckoning. And in each case, the reckoning when the bridegroom comes, when the master returns, or when the judge sits on the throne and judges the earth, is something that we all need to be fully aware of. Jesus said these words, keep watch, you do not know what day your Lord will come. And it says, keep watch, because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect. And then says, keep watch, you do not know the day or the hour. So he has given us his warning. No, I want you to go back to these bridesmaids and think of uh, their situation. And if we translate it into um, the United Kingdom in the 21st century, it probably would go something like this. So the BBC have sent a reporter down and he's going to go down to uh, this little, we'll make it a Welsh village. And so he's going to come along and he's going to say, I'm here in the pleasant rolling valleys of South Wales and I'm going to, oh yes, there's a village up there and something is happening and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go that way and I'm going to interview those little group of girls who are outside that village and see what is coming today. Hello, uh, can you help me, please? What is your name? Uh, I can't get my, word, my tongue around that at all. But, anyhow, could you tell us what is happening? <laughs> We're waiting, we're waiting we are for the bridegroom to come and bring his bride. And we're, we're going to, we're going to, we have the reception committee. We have our torches. Hold on a minute. There's our torches. Yes, yeah, see, we got our torches. And we're all ready with our torches, you see. And we're going to walk in as a procession and bring the bridegroom home. He's a great man, do you know? Why, why, why? He, he came from our village, but he went to Cardiff. And he went and he became the most important person in the world. And now he's coming back to our village, you see. And we're all going to go in and escort him there. And then we'll go into the house and we will be having a great party. We'll sing ronda and uh, Sosban Bach and other things. And we will have a wonderful time. Okay. Well, well, there we will leave them, and we will let them go their way, but I can't see any sign of a bridegroom coming here. I don't know, are we going to see anything? Now for the people in that day, that's probably how the story went. Well, maybe a little bit of uh, uh, embroidery, but what I'm trying to get at is the fact that these young girls were waiting, but they had brought their torches, the torches weren't uh, the sort of little traditional lamps you'd see in a house. They were probably the big torch you'd expect with a flame at the top. And it would have a rag or something in there that had to keep topped up with oil. And Jesus then looks at this story and tells us that of the 10 reception committee, five were wise, five were foolish. The five wise ones were those who had thought carefully and brought a little vial of oil with them to look after these, these lamps to ensure that if at any times they were going out, they would be well charged. The five foolish ones, of course, hadn't done so. Now, in the Psalms and in, the pro, in Proverbs, it speaks of wise people as the godly, those who have come, in a sense, to discover Christ if you could put it in New Testament terms. When the Bible talks about someone being foolish, it doesn't mean they're, uh, they're, they're, uh, they've overlooked something and they're being silly. No, it means that they actually haven't become, uh, uh, Well, we'll put in modern terms, a Christian. In other words, a fool is someone who has rejected God. It says in the Psalms, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so the foolish and wise are separated here in this story. But if you look at the story a little bit more closely, and have we got a PowerPoint? It might just be something that might come up. Um, you'll see that uh, in this story that the two types of people are different. But yet when you look at them, they're all the same. And as you stand and stare at them, uh, no, that's not the one, <laughs> As you stand and look at them, you'll see that you couldn't tell the difference, uh, except perhaps for the little file that the other ones had. But when the bridegroom comes, everything changes. Suddenly we see the difference. We see that the wise are on one side. They're ready. The foolish ones suddenly wake up to the fact that they have not done any preparations to receive the bridegroom. The bridegroom, of course, is a picture of Christ. And we find that in this story... That although they look the same, they're not the same. Both think they're ready for the bridegroom, but only half are. The key point from this is to just check yourself. Which type are you? Have you come to Christ and put your trust in him already? Have you made that wise decision and prepared for it? Or are you one of the foolish ones? Yes, you continue and you you enjoy fellowship, you enjoy all the other things, but have yet to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. And it is that that makes the difference. And it is that that is the source of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Once you trust him, you are a wise person. And then the second thing that comes out in this story is quite simple. That when the bridegroom arrived, the foolish uh, uh, girls looked towards the others and said, look, give us some of your oil. We need your oil. And there are some things in life that just can't be borrowed. They said, we can't give you it because we do that. We can't be ready for the bridegroom. You need to take action yourself. One of those things is faith. I think I've already described that. But the second thing is holiness. The oil in scripture is a picture of the Holy Spirit when it's anointed on people's heads. And these wise ones had taken care, they had the oil, precious oil with them. The word holiness simply means becoming more and more like Jesus. It is a supernatural work that occurs in the life of the Christian believer. You can't force it. You can't work at it and study at it and get degrees in it. No, no, no. It's the action and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He produces because he is in your life. It says this in the Bible that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you if you have come to Jesus. And we're encouraged to love one another, to walk and emulate Jesus. But we don't do that of our own selves. No, we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us to do so. My father was a great railway enthusiast. He loved steam trains. And he used to work hard on them to get them fixed up and go on the the railway lines. And uh, I used to say to him, or I often remember saying to him, that "These, uh, these are amazing trains. They must be so powerful, much more powerful than all the electric trains you'll see. And he said, not at all. He said, the thing is that when the pantograph an electric train goes up and touches the wire, it is immediately connected to the national grid. All the power in Britain can be focused on it. It is access to far more powerful systems than any steam train can ever do. When you're connected to the Holy Spirit, to God through the Holy Spirit, He gives the transforming power that enables you to do far more. and it is that that shows the love of Jesus and the character of Jesus in our lives. It also encourages us to turn away from the world around, not to love it instead. And so we're encouraged to strive without spot or blemish in our lives because He purifies us. Are you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure the Holy Spirit is in your life, changing you from the inside? Are you sure that you're leaning on him? And then the third thing that uh, the the, the Bible encourages us through is growth. You see, when Jesus described this story of the uh, 10 bridesmaids, there were four people sitting beside him, two sets of brothers, Peter and uh, Andrew, his brother, and John and James, those two brothers. And Peter wrote these words here. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you grow? It's there. You grow in grace. You grow in knowledge. Let's deal with knowledge. How do we know more of God? The Bible His word, it teaches, it tells, it it enables us to grow. It is this word that is described as milk to us that we feed on. It's described as our daily bread and it is this word that we grow inside if we trust him and we uh, mature. And in grace we mature through service, through serving others. The son of man came not just to be served but to serve. And again, Jesus brings these things in our lives. These things you cannot borrow. You must come to Jesus yourself. And only when you've met him and continue to walk in his word, in his ways, and trust with his fellowship and his people and service will we grow as he intends. The third thing, though, about the bridegroom coming is important. And I'll just read the the words of the... uh, the story out, while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went into the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Notice, he's not the bridegroom anymore. He's Jesus, he's the Lord, Lord, open to us. And he replies, truly, In fact, the old version says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I never knew you. What a damning condemnation. The door is shut. Opportunity has gone. One day, the door will be shut. And it's that day when Jesus comes. There's no other opportunity once he returns to find faith. And that is a stunning and hard message for us to understand. But the thing is that the three parables, when you take them in turn, each teach the same story. That the king is coming back, and when he comes, judgment falls. There is no second chance after death. There's no second chance when Jesus returns. But then that must put a challenge to us as believers. So where do we stand? What are we going to do about it? If this needy world is falling away, what are we going to do? Peter wrote these words. He asked the question, what sort of people should we be? What sort of people should we be in the light of this teaching, in the light of Christ's coming, in the light of where we are at the moment? It says we're waiting for and hastening the day of God. Now there's a very interesting verse that was read out to us by Igor. It says this, that one of the signs before Christ's coming is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. The question of the Christian church is, between that great mountain peak of his first Christmas coming... And between this great mountain peak of his return, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's asking each one of us. And if he's coming, it says this, the job of the church is to get the gospel out. That's the only way that people can be saved. If you've got a medicine that can cure the worst sickness, get it out. If you've got a fire hose, get it out and put the fire out. If you've got any means to save the falling and the lost, get out there. And that is what our job is as a church. Yes, we must grow one with another, but our challenge is that we must also bring the good news to our community, and to one another, and make sure that people have the chance to be saved themselves. Peter, in his description of the second coming, compares it to the flood and Noah. And if you think of it this way, that The door of the ark stayed open until every last pair of animals and human being made their way up the gangplank and into the ark. When the last little lamb crossed the threshold of the ark, the door was slammed shut and the rest of the world perished. When you and I get out with the gospel and the last believer enters the kingdom of heaven, then is the second coming. So we have a job to do. And the more we do it, the quicker it comes. That's what Peter means by hastening it. So it falls to us. The college I'm going to is called Spurgeon's College. It's one he founded. And he says these tremendous words. It is the job of the whole church, the whole business of the whole church, to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. The coming of Jesus is a tremendous challenge because it encourages us To get on with it. Get Brexit done. No, sorry, I don't mean that. Get get the kingdom done. That's the thing. That's the real challenge for us. Stuff politics. We're here to get the kingdom completed. And get people done. Brought in. Built up. Enjoying and growing in the Holy Spirit. And maturing. And then ready with a lamp that will never go out. To welcome the bridegroom on his return.